If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board, while Willard's getting booking the guests in the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson! Just having fun running through the snow. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right, so uh, snow is coming down. Uh, when it starts to go up, you worry. That's what my dad used to say. Um, and, and, you know, it's funny because the headlines, the most significant snowfall of the season. Hello? 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 How many have we had? <laughs> That's why had... it's significant, Scott. It's the first. <laughs> it's the first one. The first big snowfall of the year, the day after Valentine's Day. There you go. Now, wait a sec. Does that say something? No, let's not even go there. Hope you had a good Valentine's Day, by the way. Or if not, perhaps you're out in the snow uh, right now, at least trying to make a snow angel of some sort. You know, I think the the, the most significant portion of this event that we're going to see today, if we could call it that, is that it is probably the first... Um, significant snowfall we've had, uh, even though it is uh, the middle of February. So there you go. Uh, winter has finally come to the hammer uh, on this uh, February 15th, 2024. All right, what is going on? Ontario, uh, this is kind of funny. This was like yesterday. We talked about this, that um, they were talking about there's not going to be any carbon tax. Uh, and so from then on, if, if there is a carbon tax or someone tries to introduce one in Ontario, they have to change the law because there's a law saying there's no carbon tax. So, uh, which is kind of funny when anyone says that, and they're all guilty of it, uh, especially when they talk about five and 10 year plans when they probably won't be in office anymore. And the other thing is, is once the other person gets in there, then, you know, they can change and they can do whatever they want. So they can say, well, so much for that one and rip it up in half. So uh, a lot of politics going on. The good news is we are hearing news that food inflation is easing off a bit. So uh, there you go. Does that make you feel any better? All right. Good to know. We got a jam-packed show coming up. Can you smell it? It's the uh, GFL landfill story that just keeps giving and giving and giving. We'll talk to a resident living nearby and get an update on that. Apparently, things have been quite peak of late. Also, uh, we're getting more and more, and this has come to the limelight with uh, former President Donald Trump. My God, I can't believe I'm saying that guy's name again. Anyway, uh, said that, hey, you know, if you're not contributing to your NATO uh, costs and, and dues, if you're not paying your NATO dues, just like your Cub Scout dues, then, uh, except bigger, of course, um, then we're not going to protect you and basically made a flippant comment about Russia. There you go. Have at it, boys. So, uh, but it rattles the cage of everybody that isn't at their spending, including that of Canada. We'll talk about that and how long we can continue to avoid uh, contributing to NATO, for which we were one of the of the founding partners, uh, you know, masters of it all. So it's very bizarre that we've let this happen and where we are. But you know, again, look at housing. How did we How did we get here? And, and interesting when you've got the uh, the environment minister saying yesterday, or saying I, I guess uh, last week on the weekend, but it's certainly coming out that uh, they weren't interested in building any more roads. It just reminds me of the days of Dalton McGinty saying he's not interested in building anything either. And and here we are uh, 20, 25 years later, and we're wondering why we have a shortage. 
of housing and we're in the situation that we are. So uh, I don't think that pretending that uh, something's going to be different uh, 20 years from now is meaning that you can't, uh, it means that you stop building infrastructure now, especially when your population is going through the roof. And we've seen the stress that has put not only on the housing crisis, but also the healthcare crisis as well. So we'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, uh, what else we got? Oh, the, uh, the carbon tax rebrand. Is anybody buying that boy, I was watching the prime minister uh, on TV today, and uh, they're selling some housing thing in Manitoba, and he just does not look on his game. It'll be interesting to see how far that goes. Artificial intelligence in the classroom. We'll talk about that. And there was just a weird story the other day about the LCBO that came out that they were trying to address the problem of theft in their stores. And they were going to, uh, you had to show ID before you got in. And I think once the uh, word of that got to uh, the premier, that was put to a quick uh, quick halt. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on as well. You know, when we're putting the show together earlier on today, it's like the snow started to come and, and then it got heavier. I was like, yeah, maybe we should get Anthony on the phone, see what's going on here, blah, blah, blah. See the headlines first, significant snowfall of the season, which is odd in February 15th. <laughs> so, and now, you know, and it seemed to get heavier and then it slowed in, not so heavy, then heavier, then not so heavy. And I'm not sure if we're, uh, we may be through this by now. Let's bring in Anthony Farnell, Chief Meteorologist for Global News. He is here now. Anthony, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, I'm doing well. And, and yeah, we're we're pretty much through this snow event. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> and it was in how odd is it for you as a chief meteorologist for Global News to say we're having our first significant snowfall event of the season. It is February 15th. Yeah. And, and I, I put a bit of a precursor when we were uh, hyping things up yesterday. Day, uh, saying that it, it, the bar is set so low. I yeah. mean, Hamilton hasn't seen much snow. Uh, anything above six or seven centimeters would fit that criteria. And that's uh, what we ended up with or close to it. Some areas up to 10. Uh, and this was expected to be a few hours. And it really was that. And now uh, the plows have to catch up the salt trucks, but it should be fine on the roads within a couple of hours. So uh, on that note, Anthony, what have we had so far this year? And I think anything, you know, even when you say seven centimeters, um, you know, due to lack of frost or, or certainly a solid cold ground, none of it really stayed for any length of time. Yeah, and that has uh, everything to do with it. The fact that the, the ground temperatures have been warm, the um, Great Lakes are running way above seasonal. Lake Erie's at a record on this date. Uh, plus two Celsius. There's no ice to be seen. Uh, so that all has a moderating effect on any cold that does come. And we haven't seen the big lake effect outbreaks. We haven't had those what we call synoptic scale storms. Uh, it's been actually a rather pleasant February with the last week breaking records at the end. Uh, and now it's kind of a more typical winter pattern, but uh, it's not going to last. I think we do trend warmer again as we get uh, into the second half of February. And this was what you all predicted way back when at the beginning of the season and such. Uh, here we are in the middle of February right now, Anthony. What do you see for the last half of this? Well, we're still in uh, an El Nino pattern, and that was uh, the big hint that we had before the season even started. When you combine El Nino, which typically around here is mild, it's more wet than white, uh, and then also the effects of climate change. We have to factor that in. We aren't seeing uh, those same winter patterns that we had in the past. All of that led to us 
saying, okay, this was going to be a, an easier than normal winter, uh, more rain. That certainly came true. Uh, and now El Nino starting to show signs of weakening. It may be too late, but I do think there's still plenty of time to get one or two big snowstorms. And sometimes when you think back on a winter, that's all it takes. You remember those yeah. one or two day events. And uh, I don't have anything to report as far as uh, showing up in modeling or, or when we might expect that. But there is still quite a bit of winter to get through. And even the fact that it's colder than freezing at night means that at least ski hills will be able to make snow ahead of uh, the busy March break. Uh, you hit the nail on the head there, Anthony. As long as uh, the temperatures overnight stay below freezing, it certainly does help the ski hills and such. Um, I guess what we're missing here is the two or three or four weeks or five weeks or six weeks of winter wonderland where everything's white. We're just not going to see that, are we? No, I mean, this uh, may be the closest we get to it. The temperature still is going to climb another degree or two in Hamilton. So what <laughs> some of what you're seeing that's left over out there now uh, is going to melt. But what remains by midnight tonight could actually stick around through the first half of the weekend. And that's something we haven't seen, even 48 hours with uh, white conditions out there. So uh, it has been an unusual winter, to say the least. It's probably going to end up in the record books. Uh, but even closer to normal is is what we're trending towards. And that means the threat of flurries this weekend and, and maybe some more snow chances later next week. All right. As you said, by Wednesday, it looks like we're getting back up to, you know, five to eight degrees in Hamilton again. What does it look like for this family day weekend? Are we going to are we going to stay in winter at least for this? Yeah, I mean, especially the first half, the first half Saturday being cold, breezy. Uh, we have another chance of some flurries with the weak system coming through on Sunday. That actually could bring more significant snow to Washington, D.C. and Philadelphia, places that haven't had much of a winter either. Uh, so for us, yeah, the, the temperatures are close to seasonal. The winds will start to diminish Sunday into Monday. And I do think as we get uh, towards family day that'll be the best time to just get outside and uh, enjoy some sunshine as well because uh, that always feels nicer when the sun angles higher at this time of year uh, and the days are of course getting longer and longer lots to look forward to yeah you notice that that's for sure anthony farnell with us chief meteorologist global news make sure you're watching global tonight uh for more on all of this as always anthony thanks for the time be well all right you too so yeah that's it that's it. I was thinking, do I get to use the snowblower today? Do we maybe maybe tonight after the ship get? Uh, I think I just have to start it to make sure it doesn't seize up because it hasn't been running all winter. Uh, but as Anthony said, uh, winter will be with us over the course of the family day weekend. And then as we get into Wednesday of next week, we're even looking at temperatures in the five to eight degree range. So uh enjoy it well it is here i guess and and you know uh, many of you are saying hey i don't mind this at all it's less the shovel we've talked about this uh in the past and i'm not sure things are even moving because the stink is still there uh we hear more and more from people in regard to the gfl landfill in stony creek and the smell coming off it kathleen morrison is with us hamilton resident who lives nearby and with us now kathleen thank you for the time hope you're well I'm great. Thank you very much for having me. So give us an update, Kathleen. Uh, I read the note. <laughs> You've sent me a series, or we've seen a series of notes, obviously, going back and forth, and that obviously the stink had happened again, and they said they sent someone over. No stink here, and uh, <laughs> closed the case. <laughs> so give us an update where you are. 
Well, so, yeah, I mean, apparently that's how they investigate. Somebody who is nose blind to the smell walks around and looks for a smell. Um, the other thing that they do, apparently 10 days later, they look up what the wind direction was that day. And if the wind direction wasn't blowing the right way, then it wasn't them. Um, hmm. <laughs> so this is, this is where we're at with them. Uh, we, we had a bit of a break. Um, things were actually looking pretty good there for a little while, end of November and into December. We did have a couple of days around Christmas that, you know, we were smelling it again, but it was fairly mild and, you know, one-offs are going to happen. Um, and then January came and I noticed as of January 5th or 6th, that's when I started smelling it again, almost daily. Um, and, and it's just, it's gotten worse and worse since the last two weeks, um, have been incredible. It's a daily thing again. And there's actually, there's a new smell that they've added to it. It's not just the, the smell mm. of shape that we were having. There's now this rotting fish smell that we've been smelling for the past two weeks. And we now have crows that have decided that they're going to start constantly flying over top of the landfill. Um, and, and I'm not talking just one or two. I'm talking like 15 or 20. Um, so they circle a certain site, a certain spot over the landfill now almost daily as well. So this is concerning to us because it's an industrial site, right? So they don't have any like organics or food right. or anything like that in there, or at least they're not supposed to. So you said there was a period where it was better and then it got worse again and now it's worse again. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think that has something to do with the weather or do you think that's something different going on within the dump? Or do you know? I don't, even, I don't know. I, I can't even yeah. begin to guess. I mean, there's no transparency from them at all. Um, at this point, um, you know, we're, we're tracking their responses because they have 10 days to respond to our complaints. Mm -hmm. And we've been tracking them. And in our tracking I'd say probably about 95% of the responses are we checked the wind. The wind wasn't blowing the way that it would have needed to have been blowing. It wasn't us. And what if the wind's not blowing at all? Uh, then that might be the day that they say that they took a walk around and they noticed a slight smell. But that that's like we've gotten like three or four of those responses. I actually have, have you ever thought of, have you ever thought of showing just showing up and saying, "Hey, come here, get in my car. I want to take you for a ride. Just stand there and inhale." <laughs> we did. We had we had one of our one of our uh, people from the group was just so fed up. She went to their gates and called them and said, "Come out! Like it stinks right now. Please come out." <laughs> And they refuse to leave. They refuse yeah. to come outside. So yeah. it's, uh, we are frustrated. We've got another protest uh, that we're going to put on on March 1st. And then after that, we're going to start having pop-up protests that we give them no warning for. Um, we, we don't know where else to go with this. We're starting a GoFundMe so that we can get some air testing and soil testing and stuff done. At this point, we don't trust, we don't trust them. We don't trust our government. We need to take things into our own hands. All right, so let's go there. So what is the city and the province doing about this? Any, what has the reaction been? It feels like nothing. It feels like they're not doing anything. Um, it's a lot of lip service. It's a lot of we understand. What does, what does the city say, Kathleen? Let's start there. Um, they, they say it's wrong. It shouldn't be happening. It's the province's fault. Uh, they promised us air quality testing. We were supposed to get that back in December. We still haven't received it. Haven't received a date for it. Um, so they're pushing it onto the they're pushing it onto the province. Okay, so it's funny yeah. they push it onto another government as opposed to the actual company. But I digress. Uh, so then, what does the provincial government say to you? What are they doing? Not a whole lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Donna Skelly, you know, we went through that. We, we, we put together um, a petition and got over 5,000 signatures. We were under the impression that this petition was going to be presented to the minister. Um, and now we're being told, no, that's not going to happen. Donna Skelly has, you know, one minute it's she supports us and the next minute it's, well, it's not even that bad anymore. And it, we feel like we have no support from any of our government. So what now? Because obviously this has started up again. Is that accurate? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is correct. So um, like I said, we've started to go fund me. Um, we're looking into cost of soil and air testing because we don't trust the air or the soil. Um, we are looking into legal counsel. Um, there are some environmental law firms that we've been talking to. Um, we're we're going to start taking things into our own hands. The protests are going to happen regularly. Uh, nobody else is going to fight for us, so we're going to fight for us. All right. So uh, just so you know, we're trying to get Donna Skelly on on this. I know she wants she'll come on and talk about other stuff, but we want to talk about this specifically. Mm -hmm. So we'll keep we'll keep hammering from that end or from our end and trying to get Donna Skelly. Donna, we need you. We need you to come oh. to the phone and answer to this, please. Uh, yeah. So anyway, so we'll no seriously, we'll we're we're going to keep pushing for that to see if we can get some other answers. And obviously, the company is just giving you the roundabout anyway. They're just uh, giving you Absolutely. lip service. Yeah, it's a, it's so, a game. To them at this point. So um, what about other neighbors? Is this growing? Is the concern growing? Is, is the whole movement gaining uh, momentum? Uh, I mean, our group, our, our Facebook group continues to grow. Um, you, you know, we, the last protest that we had, we literally had people pulling over from the side of the road who didn't even know about the group who said, wow, I'm so glad that there's actually somebody doing something about this. Um, yeah. So, you know, we'll keep pushing, we'll keep growing. If we have to start going door to door to make sure that people know where to find us, we will. And how bad is it? Uh, well, it depends on the day. So th this fish smell is, is the worst smell I've ever smelled in my life. I would take the summer over this fish smell. That's how bad it is. And does anybody um, explain how the smell, why the smell is different now? Is anybody... No. No, they're not doing anything wrong. They're not taking anything different. No, no. They, they won't right. even admit that it's their smell. <laughs> they, we can't even find... That, they admit that... that they smell the fishy smell near the Harvey's on the corner. Yes, the big fish burger. It's selling like uh, <laughs> hotcakes. Uh, Kathleen, we'll see more if we can do more on our end and hammer away and, and, and uh, get some of these people on. Uh, Kathleen Morrison with us, Hamilton resident who lives near the landfill. The stink continues at the GFL landfill and no real answers from the company or levels of government. Kathleen, good luck and uh, we'll Thank keep you. in touch. Interesting column in the Globe and Mail. Uh, dodging the NATO spending target for defense is a shrug that Canada can no longer afford from its politicians, so says Campbell Clark, uh, chief political writer for The Globe and Mail, and here now. Campbell, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. So here we are. Uh, Donald Trump, is he's not even president uh, anymore, and yet he's getting everybody's attention by what he's saying over NATO. Uh, your thoughts on what he did say? Well, what he said was he told a story. <laughs> I don't know if this story is much to believe in, but he told a story about how when he was president, a world leader of a leader of a big European country asked him, if we don't pay for NATO, will you still protect us? And he said, no, he won't. Not only that, he would encourage Vladimir Putin to do whatever he wants with them. 
Well, uh, basically, he was saying, if you don't pay up for defense, uh, if you're a NATO member, and you don't pay up for defense, we'll throw you to the wolves. Now, he uh, describes it as though, you know, he expects to be collecting cash, but that's not the way it works. NATO countries are supposed to spend 2% of their GDP on defense, and some countries, uh, like Canada, don't, and I, that puts a greater burden on the United States to shoulder the burden. Is this story, and you know, we all know the bluster of Donald Trump, here we go again. Um, that being said, is this resonating with countries who aren't making that 2% target? I think it probably is, but there have been demands or requests from the United States and previous presidents for countries to pony up or pay more, uh, shoulder more of the burden. That's been going on for a long time. And actually, a lot of your NATO countries are increasing their spending now, uh, but mainly because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the danger and threat that they now perceive from Russia. But uh, I don't think the fear that Donald Trump is raising is the idea that he's going to not protect, the United States will not protect, uh, you know, countries that don't pay their 2%. But I think they do view him as somebody who would not keep the alliance together, that doesn't really believe in NATO. His politics are to tell Americans that foreign countries are ripping off Americans all the time. So I don't think that that, uh, you know, I don't think that uh, NATO allies will be happy about a Trump presidency either. Uh, obviously, we may not feel the threat, but it is drawing more attention to it. How do we as Canada get on the right side of this? How do we move this forward and do the right thing? So one of the, you know, for a long time, Canada has been spending much less than the the 2% target. And it's basically it declined over decades and uh, it has gone up a little bit in the last few years, but it is still well below 1.3, 1.4% of GDP. And the issue now is really not whether Donald Trump wants us to spend. It's that the world is really changing pretty yeah. dramatically. Uh, there's a lot of... Uh, there are a lot of threats. There's competition from China, which is now an ally of Russia. Um, and, you know, the U.S. is a heavily indebted nation, too. So there are reasons why they don't want to bear the defense burden for the world. And, you know, there is a domestic need to start taking our foreign policy and our defense policy seriously. So, I mean, that does require some kind of ramp up of defense spending in the future. Now, there, there are plans to spend more because if you recall, Canada's buying F-35 fighter jets and we're supposed to be building new frigates. So um, there are plans to increase spending, but it's just, these aren't the kinds of things that we can continue to ignore. And one of the reasons I wrote that column is Pierre Polyev is basically saying the same things that prime ministers have been saying, of Canada have been saying for, for 20 years, which is, you know, we'll we'll work towards it. We'll, we'll get there one day or you know, not even that. They don't say we'll get there one day. They, there's this continuing sort of the checks in the mail promises that we'll do something about it sometime. And yeah, we'll 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 try a bit. 
Uh, we all know that this isn't a big deal for voters there, you know, which is why it's probably not a big deal for politicians. That being said, as you pointed out, Campbell, things are a lot different now. When we were letting things slide, say, a decade or two ago, the Cold War was ever. It was a, or was over, rather. And China was the golden goose. We were looking at them as an opportunity, not as a threat. But now it's completely different. And as you said, it's a different world. Uh, are Canadians realizing that? Therefore, politicians, perhaps. <laughs> Uh, I don't think that there has been a wave of uh, realization in Canada that foreign policy, that defense policy is far more important than it used to be. But I do think there are some eyes opening to that now. And that's particularly because we're really seeing a fair bit of conflict in the world that seems to, you know, really hit home. You know, the, there have been, uh, you know, there's there's been a lot of wars lately. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has, uh, you know, been on the news in the news a lot. We see that there's a a lot more um, security threats out there in the world. So, I think there's some eye opening that is beginning. I don't think that Canadian politicians are rushing to uh, make it an issue, though, because you know we're talking about money that. Um, had to be spent that you have to promise to spend and they you know it takes away from other promises that they might want to make so there's still you know we're still sort of falling behind reality in Canada mm. <laughs> on a lot of things as well as NATO when you think about it <laughs> all right Campbell Clark with us his latest in the Globe and Mail dodging the NATO spending target for defense is uh, defense is a shrug that Canada can no longer afford from its politicians and joining us to discuss Campbell Clark chief political writer Globe and Mail always fun Campbell thanks for the time be well thank you Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. The Canadian Taxpayers Federation is calling Trudeau's carbon tax rebrand lipstick on a pig. And, you know, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. As politicians often will float ideas or parties will float ideas before they uh, actually present them to see how they're going to go over. And this one went on like a lead balloon. I mean, I don't know what the reason is. Well, the reason they gave is we don't understand it. So by better uh, uh, having a better uh, name, I guess, we'll explain that and answer your questions and, and make you understand it more. And, and the other issue is it's surprising to think that you're not smart enough to figure all of this out, not to mention what does it cost for this sort of thing? Let's bring in Franco Terrazano, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director, here now. Franco, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, thanks for having me on today. I, Franco, I must admit, I'm a little surprised they went ahead with this after floating this like a couple of weeks ago, because uh, it, it, it didn't sell well then. Are you surprised they went through with this? Well, you know, I'm surprised in a sense, because this is probably like the silliest way for them to have reacted, but I'm also not surprised because it's kind of par for the course with this government now, you know what I mean? But like, look, make no mistake about it, them changing the name of a carbon tax rebate ain't gonna stop them from plummeting in the polls, you know what I mean? Changing the name from climate action incentive payment to Canada carbon rebate, that ain't gonna do nothing for them, right? Because, you know, they do have sloppy communications, don't get me wrong, but that's not their fundamental problem. That's not their fundamental problem. They have a carbon tax is making people's lives more expensive problem. That's the issue. 
is that the carbon tax is making it more expensive for people to fuel up, making it more expensive for people to go to the grocery store, making it more expensive for people to stay warm during the winter months, right? And if the government is actually serious about digging its way out of the poll, uh, out of the poll situation, then it has to ask itself a very serious question and analyze it. If people are upset, furious, and can't afford a carbon tax that has 14 cents a liter of gas today, how are people going to react when the carbon tax is cranked up all the way to 37 cents a liter of gas? And how much lipstick are they going to need for that? <laughs> um, you, you know, uh, obviously, as we're sitting talking about this, you know, what does this change? Uh, how are people, does this pull the wool over anybody's eyes? Perhaps, Franco, what they're trying to do, I'm playing devil's advocate here, is they want to draw more attention to it, which is what we're doing because we're talking about it, so they, they can get a second chance to explain it. Is that what's happening here? No, it's not. And you know why? Because, look, who gets more cameras and who gets more media than the prime minister, the minister, mm. and their army of communications people? Who? Nobody. And every chance they get, they talk about the rebates, the rebates, the rebates, the rebates. But people aren't buying what they're selling. People understand that it's impossible for the government to impose a tax, tax that tax with a sales tax, him hundreds of millions of dollars off the top to pay for bureaucrats to administer the tax and then somehow make the vast majority of people better off with rebates. It's impossible. And Canadians get that. Two more things. Let's look at the data. The PBO has crunched the numbers and the carbon tax is costing the average family hundreds of dollars more every year than what they get back in rebates. Final anecdote. If the carbon tax wasn't making life more expensive, then why would Trudeau have taken the carbon tax off of the furnace oil for three years? Yeah. With that move, Trudeau admitted to everyone that the carbon tax makes life more expensive. It's game over. Uh, it was interesting when this uh, the politicians were trying to spin this yesterday, including one liberal minister. If we ax the tax, we will be <laughs> axing the rebates. Franco, yeah. if we cut this tax, you're not getting a rebate. They're really not putting their best arguments forward, are they? No. <laughs> like, come on. Like, it's almost such a silly thing. Like, it kind of stumps you at first. You're like, wait a second. Um, yeah. Excuse me. <laughs> it's like it's a shell game. There's no need for the rebate, you know? Yeah. Uh, so um, moving forward, uh, does this help? Does this give them um, uh, any more wiggle room on this? No, I don't think it helps. I actually think it hurts, right? Because. The carbon tax for them now is, is, is kind of a losing issue, right? So the more that people are like, excuse me, what are you doing? You're increasing the carbon tax in a couple of months. The worse it is for them. And look, um, Trudeau may never be willing to completely scrap the carbon tax. That's what we want him to do. He may never be willing to totally do that. But he could at least do the little things to make life more affordable, like not raise the carbon tax again on April 1st like take the carbon tax off of everyone's home heating bill this winter, like making sure the carbon tax on farm relief bill actually gets passed, right? So there is at least little things that Trudeau could do, but he's just not doing it. And I think that's also what really hurts. Uh, we talked we, you know, talked about the ArriveCan app uh, earlier on in the week. How much would it cost for a government to rebrand something like this? What, what is the cost <laughs> for this? Oh, I don't even want to know. I don't even want to know. I mean, we're going to find out, right? As we speak, we're filing the A-tips. So we're going to learn. But look, I mean, just to administer the carbon tax, if I'm not mistaken, it's about 200 million bucks. 
right? Just since they brought in the carbon tax. So that's just like the bureaucracy that is needed to tax Canadians and to send out these rebates. So, I mean, look, everything that this government does uh, seems to cost us an arm and a leg. I mean, remember, ArriveCan started out as an $80,000 simple, uh, simple app, ended up costing Canadian taxpayers $60 million. So if anything, yeah, this, this, this rebrand is probably just an expensive, uh, futile effort. Franco Terrazano with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director on the Carbon Tax Rebrand, and hopefully will tell us one day what it actually costs. Franco, thanks for the time and insight. Be well. Hey, thanks for having me on today. It's Hamilton Today, 900 CHML in Hamilton. We're coming back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Well, you know, we've talked a lot about uh, artificial intelligence over the last little while, and and it's pretty scary, Um, and especially when it's in the hands of students. Where does artificial intelligence fit into the classroom? Boy, we're having a hard time figure out where, figuring out where the uh, where the iPhone fits into or the smartphone fits into the classroom. Let's bring in Andy Kidder, Executive Director, People for Education, and is here now. Andy, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am doing well. Thank you for having me. How scared are you, Annie, of the letter AI? I mean, it's, you know, to me, this is just like a really, really super technological inversion, uh, advancement or version of Cole's notes. Well, it's, I mean, it, you know, I just, my proviso here is I'm incredibly old, so it's all kind of a mystery. Um, I think it's so much more than that. For one thing, I, it can be incredibly scary if we think of all the kind of fake crap out there that is made possible by AI. That's really scary. You can have whole, you know, videos of people that they didn't actually make. Um, but also it's here to stay. So we can't just keep being scared of it and going, why won't it go away? And I think that when we think about it, as opposed to when we first thought about like chat GPT and stuff like that, and we went, oh, everybody's going to use it to cheat, which I'm sure they will. But also it's a reality. So the big thing now is how do we learn to use it? How do we learn what are the right questions to ask AI? How do we how do we make sure that the human part of us, which is important and different and and is not replaceable totally by a machine, how do we teach kids those incredibly important human skills that will allow them to rule AI as opposed to AI ruling us? Um, but it is it's a it's a new frontier, and it is. I mean, definitely, you know, my first reaction is, ah, when will it go away? It's not going to go away. It's going to become more and more pervasive. So we have to learn to use it uh, well, properly, effectively. And many people are learning how to use it and say that it is quite an effective tool. Oh, yeah. I mean, I know somebody on our board said they decided to just put into chat. GPT to you know mm-hmm. write a description of People for Education, the organization I run, and the description that it wrote was really great, and yeah. and it is really scary because it can like zoom through you know a million web pages in you know a second and come up with this stuff. But this is why, as opposed to saying everybody needs to learn to code, which I'm sorry, in about another year AI will do all the coding, so mm. nobody needs to learn to code. But everybody needs to learn the incredibly complex kind of critical thinking skills and the more sort of how to think about context and stuff like that so that you can you can use the AI again. And and we're going to have to get beyond the, 
you know, oh, oh no, kids will use it to cheat because we're going to have to figure out that better too. So that I've read about professors who are going, they're going fine, use AI, but I'm going to judge your work on mm-hmm. how well you've used it. And, you know, Andy, like you said, I mean, you know, this is uh, my generation, too. I mean, my goodness, I remember when using a calculator in math class was like, uh, it was like, I don't know, only on certain times. But um, but as we said, this is a tool, but like anything we use, and maybe I'm oversimplifying this, Andy, but um, you, you can use whatever you need to gather your information. But at the end of the day, you can't copy it. You have to rewrite it in your own way. Am I oversimplifying it? No, no, I think it's true. But it's not only that you can't copy it. Mm. You have to learn what's valid information, what's real information. You You have to learn judgment. God knows about information. If we think about mm-hmm. how much misinformation there is out there. So yeah. you have to learn who wrote this in the first place and what was their perspective and what are they bringing to this conversation? So it's not just rewriting the, the you know, stuff in your own words. It's really, truly having the capacity for that, for the judgment, for the, for being able to really look deeply at things and understand what. What, you know, what's driving the thoughts in this? What's good research? What's crappy research? What's, you know, how can I make sure that I'm looked at enough kind of credible sources that, and ask the right questions so that I can use AI properly? And things like that are, you know, they are vital because if we look at, I mean, besides kids in schools, there people are using AI to drive, you know, misinformation in elections. Like, Oh, yeah. Yeah. In our whole world right now, we ha- we have to look at it and understand it. Um, and it goes and it goes so fast. Like it it's so smart. <laughs> it learns from itself and it goes faster and faster and faster. So it's very hard to keep up. And, you know, as you mentioned, it's a gatherer of information. It brings all of this from uh, a bazillion sources mm-hmm. together, but it may not all apply to you. You were talking about feeding in people for education. I put in my name, Scott Thompson. Uh-huh. I'll get a certain amount that's gathered, which is absolutely correct. But then I'll also get information from every other Scott Thompson on the planet. Yeah, so, yeah. again, you have to go through, you have to weed through this. You have to, you, you basically yeah. have to do what you always did. You just do it a different way. Yeah, but and that takes skill. Like it's understanding yeah. that there's like a whole new bunch of skills that we have to know to be able to use it, you know, properly, effectively, you know, honorably, all of those things. And 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 so it's not just yay, yippee, now I can push a button. Uh, because I mean, I was just putting out our, you know, helping with somebody else put out our newsletter, and it used to, you know, used to do it and then push save. Now it's said right on it. Use yeah. AI editing, and I went. Well, I don't want to because what if <laughs> I don't like, you know? And so I didn't push the button. I have to say, but I probably should have because it probably would have caught little errors that I hadn't. Okay, so where does this leave the discussion about cell phones in the classroom? Because it thinks once we're talking about AI, then that's out the window. However, I do know there's some school boards uh, that are that are trying to to work with this again and control uh, use in the uh, cell phone use in the classroom. And again, like AI, there's a lot, it's a research tool if you're using it, but you shouldn't be yapping on it uh, or, or conducting business when the teacher is trying to deliver a lesson of some sort. Yeah. It, what are your thoughts on moving forward with this? Can we police it? I still think we can but what are your thoughts i I don't know like that i mean i think there's a whole nother scary thing which is 
how addictive uh, technology is. I mean, I'm terrible about looking at my phone all the time, so I want to plead guilty right away. But I, we do have to think about that, not because it, like, yeah, I mean, I know it's part of, it's part of technology, but kids are addicted to their phones. All of those big, huge companies have very purposefully made things. I sound like a conspiracy theorist, but they've made it addictive. They know how the algorithms work. They know how to suck you in. You know, I get sent videos that I watch, uh, you know, so part of the classroom problem is there's another bigger problem. You know, how are we dealing with a whole, you know, new generations of kids who have lived online and who are, um, they are on their phones a lot. It is affecting their lives. And that's, and it's, and it's, it's another thing beyond just a distraction. But again, I don't know, like, I feel like that ship has sailed too. So I'm not sure uh, what we can do in classrooms, except maybe go for the next 20 minutes. Nobody's allowed to look at their phone. See if you can last that long. Yeah, really? um, well, because we're all, you know, we, we, I mean, not, you know, I watch my children who are grown up, but they all are on their phones while they are on their phones while they watch TV. They're on their phones yeah, while yeah. they do other things. Yeah. And you go, maybe we should just all practice, you know, 10 minutes a day of trying to be a little bit you know, present and not look at our phones. But yeah, so it's a really complicated problem, the phone piece, because it's affecting a lot of things. It's a huge distraction. It's bad for kids' mental health. It's, uh, it means you're not totally present and listening and, you know, there uh, in a classroom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good point. Oh, yep. I don't know. <laughs> Any it's kidder with us? Andy Kidder with us, Executive Director of People for Education. Cell phones, one thing. Now, what about AI? Andy, as always, thanks for the discussion. Be well. Nice to talk. The Ontario government has killed a controversial security check pilot program before it even really got started. It uh, was set through the LCBO to run some liquor stores um, and then was canceled just days after it was announced. Uh, the program that would have had customer identification cards scanned at the interest, uh, entrance to some stores, uh, the, uh, the government immediately canceled the pilot project after the concerns were raised. And this was uh, put in place or was thought of in order to combat theft at certain stores. Let's bring in Bruce Winder, retail analyst and author, retail before, during, and after COVID-19, and here now. Bruce, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, I'm doing well, Scott. Thanks thanks for having me on the program. So how does this work, Bruce? Like, you'd have to show ID when you go in, and then your ID would be scanned? Yeah, that's my understanding, is that, you know, it was obviously a tool that was trying to be used to counter um, some of the shoplifting. There's been some massive shoplifting and theft, some very brazen, you know, where they literally walk out and just take everything. And, and mm-hmm. So I think the LCBO was trying to combat it, but obviously the uh, the government shot it down. So uh, was this something that would have come uh, from the brass at the LCBO as a pilot, and then once the government gets wind of it, they, they uh, cancel it? Yeah, that's probably what happened, right? It was probably just something that, you know, LCBO top management worked with their store teams and said, hey, how can we stop the bleeding, so to speak? And someone came, probably came up with an idea, which sounded good on the surface, right? Hmm. But when you sort of add a political lens to it, um, like the government has done, you can see how it could become a very bad idea very quickly. So I'll play devil's advocate here, Bruce. Why not? Um, I, I guess the first question is, what do you do with the info? What info are, what info are you collecting? 
Yeah, see, and that's just it, Scott. I mean, I think that's part of the issue, right, is, you know what, um, people are very private about their info. You know, what is the LCBO going to do with that info? It is a, a government-owned organization. And it's a very very controversial topic, too, um, as it relates to, you know, alcohol consumption, right? So, you know, you don't necessarily mm. want someone getting your information in terms of how much you drink, what you drink, etc. You know, that could have implications for insurance reasons or other issues, right? So. If you kind of believe in the big brother, big brother's watching, you know, then definitely this is too much of the state sort of uh, uh, inserting themselves into our lives. I should have been buying all my booze with cash, Bruce. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so are there other ways like what what else can be done here? And, you know, we've certainly heard stories that, you know, what goes in and what you're describing in in certain LCBO outlets and such. How what can they do to keep a handle on this? It is really tough. You know, it's really tough. In the old days, you know, if you tried to take alcohol, someone would tackle you and bring you yeah. to the ground and have <laughs> yeah. a fight and probably get half the booze back. Now, with cell phones and uh, videos and, you know, uh, social media, it's just too dangerous. The liability is too high, too. So it's mm. really tough. You know, all you can really do is try to maybe hire some security guards who look scary and look tough. Uh, maybe hire a police officer might be one way to do it. That's very expensive, though. So, you know, there's a few things you can do, but if someone's going to steal, you know, it's really hard to stop them now. So, uh, in other words, the thieves know that the the store policy probably is not to challenge them because of liability issues. They don't want to get them hurt. Yeah, it's a great issue. And you can see this around North America now in the UK. People know that, you know, the store folks aren't going to do anything because they've been told by their bosses not to do anything. Um, So, you know, they're just going to walk in and walk out. And as long as they get there before the police arrive, then they're probably okay. What about, you know, clothing stores have those things, they're tagged and such. Uh, so, you know, if you go out the, w- without going through the cash, that the alarm goes off, or is that not a deterrent anymore? <laughs> I don't think it's a deterrent anymore, Scott. You know, the one thing that was a bit of a deterrent is some of the clothing companies had um, a setup where um, they had sort of an ink deposit repository yeah, there. So, yeah. You know, you, if you took off the thing at home, it would put ink all over the garment. Very difficult to do with alcohol, right? You know, yeah. but uh, that, that was probably effective in this time. What about packaging? Is there anything that can be done with packaging to help this? I mean, you could always put uh, RFID tags in the packaging, which will alert an alarm on the way out. But I think we're past that now. You know, I don't think there's much you can do. All you can really do is lock up if you lock up the alcohol. But can you imagine locking up everything in an LCBO? How long it would take, yeah. how much they'd lose in sales, the staff cost required. It would destroy the business model. Well, you know what? We could go back, Bruce, to the old days when, you know, you were there with your dad and you'd fill out the pad and then hand it to the guy with the tie on behind the counter. Then he'd go into the back and bring out your bottle. Yeah, you know what? I remember that time, too. And you know what? We might end up going back there someday. You know what? In Europe, if you go to Europe and you go to different stores, like even hardware stores in Europe, everything is behind the cash. You know, you can't touch anything as a consumer. You ask to get it, and then they, they sell it to you and give it to you. So we might end up going back to that old consumer distributing slash LCPO model. Uh, any jurisdictions got a handle on this, or is it the same everywhere? No, I think it's pretty much the same everywhere right now. A lot of people are struggling with it. You know, there's a lot of different technology that's trying to be developed. But you know what? When, when someone really wants to steal, it's very mm. difficult to stop them until the laws are changed. If the laws become a lot more strict, and, you know, there's able to sort of enforce it after the fact and find these people, 
then you know that that could that might deter some people as well. Bruce Winder, retail analyst and author of Retail Before, During, and After COVID nineteen LCBO ID card pilot has been scrapped. Bruce, thanks for the time and insight. Be well. Yeah, you too, Scott. Take care. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, this year's budget has finally been voted on with those for and against it much split like it was last year. And, of course, the police budget part of this as well. Uh, I should also mention that Mayor Andrew Horvath is going to be on with Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news. Larry Deany is joining us now, former mayor of City of Hamilton, and here now. Larry, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am well, Scott. Uh, likewise with you, I hope. Yes, thanks so much. Uh, obviously, Larry, a city budget at the best of times is always a huge challenge. Um, everybody knows what you got to try to balance here. How difficult is it now uh, or in a post-pandemic world with what we're dealing with? Well, it's always difficult um, and very important, by the way, because, of course, the budget is the really the blueprint um, of uh, what the city will do for its residents uh, over the coming year. Uh, you can have all kinds of plans and uh, and lofty goals, but uh, the the rubber hits the road when you put your money where your mouth is and allocate funds for various projects. So it's always a challenge, that's for sure. And it seems as if these days uh, municipalities are having a greater challenge than uh, than ever because of all the issues that are confronting us. Uh, and so it's it's good that Hamilton uh, finally has a budget. We need to move on. Uh, but, uh, of course, it's complicated because there's some good things and some very bad things in the budget. Uh, let's get your overview. What are your thoughts? Expand on that. Well, the, 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 the very bad thing, of course, is that they've come down to a 5.9 or whatever it is percent increase, um, essentially by using money in the bank, by using reserves, depleting reserves um, uh, to some extent. Uh, which means that the budget pressures are there. Uh, they've just used, uh, you know, what was in the uh, in the uh, um, in the till to, uh, to, to to lower the cost for the taxpayers. But those pressures are there because that cost is going to be there next year, compounded by the fact that there are going to be more increases next year. And when you go to reserves, two things happen: uh, they they lower and and maybe even disappear. Uh, so that you can't go to them next year when you still have the same budget pressures. But also reserves are there for a specific reason. Uh, and that reason is uh, for projects, often capital projects, infrastructure, and so on. So if you use them for operating uh, dollars, um, um, then uh, uh, you are doing the projects that you had intended that money to, to go for. So it's not a good way to, bu- to budget. I understand why they did it. They, they don't want to, you know, come like Toronto came with a 10% increase. And uh, they know that, that this would not stand in Hamilton. But they really have given us almost that kind of an increase uh, because they've maintained the high spending pressures that are existent in the budget. And that's too bad. 
How hard is it to trim uh, a city budget? And I can think of one issue that stands out for me, and that's garbage pickup, which, uh, you know, many municipalities do recycling uh, every week, but every other week they do garbage in Hamilton, not the case. I mean, this just seems like such a no-brainer. We've had this discussion decades and decades ago, yet we're still stuck here. It almost seems like a super mailbox issue. Um, Are we doing what we can to trim in situations like this? No, there there are several issues. One is one is um, an operational issue such as that. And quite frankly, uh, most uh, other than holidays, most days now it's just me and my wife, so I don't have you know four, two or three or kids or three kids like like I had when they were all living mm-hmm. at home. But most of the time, my my garbage bin is uh, one quarter filled. Yeah. Um, um, and so if if it was if it were picked up every other week, uh, I could manage that. Uh, for sure. So that could be looked at. So those operational efficiencies, um, uh, people are around that horseshoe table are, are reluctant to, uh, to uh, and we used to have these arguments, to, to diminish or, or reduce services to people. Um, and, and they don't look at, uh, you know, are those services still needed in the same way? Could we do things differently still by providing the service? So that's one, one thing that can be done. But really, the budget has blown up. I mean, we are spending 20%, and I just had a quick look at the numbers. We are spending 20% more this year than we did last year, mm-hmm. even though the increase is down to 5%. The actual expenditure is 20% higher than last year. That is not something that's sustainable. And, uh, you know, I know that the mayor, and then God bless her, she... She did her best to sort of steer the middle road, and I'm pleased, by the way, that the police budget made it through, even though there were some shenanigans by the one-term counselor from uh, from downtown. Sorry, I'm predicting the future. Uh, maybe I should be doing that. Um, uh, by by the counselor from downtown who tried to to hack it, and I'm glad that that survived. But <clears throat> we have increased staff exponenti- exponentially. Yeah. Um, and uh, and that is where most of the expenditures are. You know, you can talk about paper clips. You can talk about um, the little ceremonial things that cost nineteen, twenty, fifty thousand dollars for various uh, uh, occasions. But really, the majority of the funds are because municipalities are a people-driven service. You have to hire people to do the work to provide the service to taxpayers. Uh, that's where the costs are. And uh, and the fact that they've uh, hired um, uh, many many more staff uh, into this budget means that the costs have gone up. So a 20% increase in your budget uh, is uh, is never a, a good idea in my estimation. So that's where really the savings are. You can look at you know doing garbage pickup every couple of weeks and that'll save money. Of course, you can look at reducing some. Some uh, some areas uh, that that might be a little fat, and there's always fat. Uh, but really, uh, when you increase staff, uh, for example, if I'm remembering correctly, they hired 20 people just to look after the bike lanes, to to increase the number of uh, staff looking after bike lanes, but be- mm. because they've telescoped that program uh, that was a 25-year program or 20-year program into four years, and that means they've had to hire lots of people. Now, Hamiltonians will consider that and say, is it really worth it? 
Um, and I don't mean to pick on bike lanes because they do have their purpose. But but when you're in a financial crunch, maybe now's not the time to really ramp up that expenditure. And that's just one item. Uh, Larry, we're getting lots of uh, calls, especially out Stony Creek Way, uh, about the GFL dump and the smell that it's giving off. It seems to subside every so often, then it comes back. But it seems to be an ongoing irritant for people in this area. What can they do about it? What can they do? My goodness, I know. Uh, it uh, It's really gotten bad, apparently, according to the complaints that I've been reading about and talking to some people about who live near the area and um, you know full disclosure i did some work for uh, the company that owned uh, that landfill uh, not this company uh, but the previous one uh, and they were meticulous the previous uh, company was meticulous about making sure that uh, whatever was being brought up there um, was not going to cause any problems uh, for uh, in terms of odors and other issues uh, so I don't know whether they've changed uh, ownership and changed uh, how they're doing business up there, but it certainly has uh, become an irritant. Um, now, it, it is, you know, people, of course, call it a dump. It's not a, a municipal dump. No. Um, and that's key because, of course, municipal waste doesn't go in there. And that's the food waste and uh, all of all of mm-hmm. uh, that sort of stuff that creates odor issues. Um you don't see birds flying over that landfill because it's an industrial waste. Actually, Larry, actually, Larry, we had a resident on today that said that, no, all of a sudden they're smelling fish and there's tons of crows flying around the place now. Uh, Now that's anecdotally. Well, of course. And, but I, I would be very surprised uh, if, if they're bringing in um, um, material in there that, that, uh, that, that biodegrades that would attract that. But if, you know, the nature tells you if they're doing something incorrect, if, if there mm-hmm. are birds flying around, uh, then that tells you that what's going in there is attracting them because, because, because they'd be there for, for food, of course, and that shouldn't be happening. So if they've made some change to the material that's being brought up there, that's perhaps causing the problem. The other issue, of course, is that it's an engineered landfill, which means then, and they, they did receive approval to expand it which means that they have to um, uh, remove some of uh, the uh, landfill that's there and they have to put in this engineered liner. Uh, and so that disturbing of what's there might be releasing some odors as well. But you wouldn't think that in the wintertime, especially, uh, that there would be odor issues. That's more of a, a summer and a spring issue. So something is happening there. But let me tell you who's responsible. Uh, for making sure that things are on the up and up. It's the province. Uh, landfill is a provincially uh, regulated uh, entity, and the province and the Ministry of the Environment uh, has people that go and check, uh, and uh, and the company has to make reports on what is being brought up. Uh, they're, they're, they are also monitored for that. Uh, people just show up uh, unannounced, and they want to see the trucks that are going in, just to keep everybody honest. So really, the fingers should be pointed uh, at the province in terms of getting to the bottom of this, at the very least, in terms of explaining to people what's happening, why it's happening, and when it's going to stop. Uh, what is the responsibility does the company have here? Should the company be well, getting well, out of out ahead of this and, and at least trying to at least provide information for, for residents? 
Yeah, as I see, the company that I did some work for was called TerraPure. And I can tell you, because I attended meetings for two years almost, attending meetings, attended meetings uh, on, uh, on the issue, and, and I saw how they managed the operation. And they were absolutely meticulous um, about reporting to the community. There's a, uh, there's a, a volunteer group um, that, that is part of the uh, uh, landfill uh, monitoring uh, situation. And these are residents who live around the area. They receive reports. They're able to ask questions. Uh, but uh, back in the day when I was involved, the company was meticulous about making sure that um, community relations were uh, of the of the utmost uh, importance to them as they were doing their business, of course, uh, and um, and never had any issues. Never had any issues. In fact, I'm, you know, my my history with the landfills goes back to when I was an elected official here in Stony Creek. Uh, when they first came in, I mean, they were there already, but when they first came in and wanted to expand, and, and that was a, a royal fight that occurred in uh, in the community. Uh, and so I've monitored, uh, I would say, for the last, uh, you know, 30 years what's happening there. And then I got to see from the inside the operations when I did some consulting work for them. Uh, and so the previous uh, company, and I'm not casting aspersions about the current company, I don't know how what they're doing. But if they're having some problems, there's obviously some issues. Uh, I can tell you, though, from past experience that uh, there were never any complaints. But when there were complaints, they were addressed immediately. And you never heard what you're hearing now in terms of people uh, up in arms. And I know that uh, Councillor Clark uh, is taking some heat uh, over the issue because he's the representative of the area. also did some work for the previous owner, not this current owner, uh, when he was not on council. And um, and knows the landfill well, and I'm sure he'd like to see the thing resolved. Uh, and people, of course, are putting some pressure on him uh, as a representative to get to the bottom of, to the bottom of it. But really, the legislative authority for it is with the uh, province. And I know that uh, uh, MPP uh, Donna Skelly has taken some strong positions um, against the company, or at least against the problems that the company is having, wanting to see it resolved as well. Yeah, we're trying to get her on, Larry, and uh, and, and get that side of the story. I've been uh, emailing back and forth with her office today. Is it time to shut this down, considering where Hamilton is and the fact that the housing is expanding? And I, I mean, know. there's a lot of residential around that area. Well, let, let me tell you though. Let me tell you. Um, uh, you, you you can't a you can't shut it down. They have a license to operate. They have to uh, they have to operate according to the rules that they were given the license uh, with. Right. But also, uh, these landfills, especially the industrial landfills, are extremely important to the economy of uh, of Ontario. Uh, they take industrial waste that you can't do anything with. You can't recycle it. Essentially, it's, it's uh, stones, rocks, I mean, things of that nature uh, that you can't do anything uh, but landfill. Uh, and they take it from local industry, local companies, um, uh, mostly, not, not exclusively, but mostly. And, and um, for example, you know, we're building an LRT. There's going to be some excavations done. Where do you think that stuff is going to go? It's got to go into some of these stuff that you can't recycle and you can't turn into gravel to reuse. Uh, right. Some of it is going to go into landfills. And so if the province shuts down landfills, uh, it, 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 it'll essentially shut down some businesses. So they are needed. There's no question uh, that they're needed. Also. Um, you have to understand this uh, as well, that today, because of the uh, 
environmental rules that have been put in place by the federal and the provincial governments to get a license for another landfill is nearly impossible. So it's in the province's interest. This is why they approved the expansion that uh, that uh, the, 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 this particular landfill received uh, uh, some years ago. Um, but they had no place else to put stuff. And, and I think the province gets it. So it's a balancing act between trying to keep it environmentally appropriate so that people can live in harmony with the activity, um, but also needing the activity for the economic benefits that it provides. Larry Deani with us, former mayor, city of Hamilton, talking about all things Hamilton. As always, Larry, thank you for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. You too. Scott Radley, you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news, he's got the mayor with him, and he's here now. Hey, Scott, how you doing? I am well. How are you? I'm doing very well. Great article today. I know you got a lot of kudos for writing this, and basically, if I'm paraphrasing, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, it, it talked about the, the way the police budget has been scrutinized. Perhaps we should be scrutinizing every department in the city the same way. Why not? Like, I I, I gave kudos to Councillor Cameron Kretsch for doing this, for going, if you're going, if, look, if these are tough times, if these with are... Ch- with tongue firmly planted well, in cheek. hold on. The initial part was kudos because yes, tongue was later firmly planted in cheek, but if we are in tough times and I believe we are, I don't know why we shouldn't be going after and Mm -hmm. not going after, but going through the city budget, keeping in mind, this is not mean, this is not unfair because this is our money they are spending. So asking them to pay very close attention and go over everything. I don't think is an unreasonable question. And I think that Councillor Kretsch demonstrated, even though it was defeated, demonstrated it's doable. You can go through and start pulling these things out that may not be huge amounts of money, but when you start adding them up, they amount to something. And so, yeah, I, I you know, it was, it was pointing out, I think the, what I was trying to do was point out, look, if you can do this with the police budget and he has now demonstrated, he has provided the template that this can be done, why are we not doing this within every single corner of City Hall, every office, every department? Why not? Are we not, though? Because I think most taxpayers would figure, well, yeah, we are. Why aren't we? Not like this. Not not to the degree that it was done here, where they're talking about, well, look at retiree benefit. I mean, it was it was pulled down to, we can get rid of a $1,900 yeah. license for a survey monkey contract. Um that's a little extreme, I think, that they were trying to do that. But look, if you're going to say that we need to get rid of the police choir and the police chorus and the police mm. pipe band, certainly I think it's not unreasonable to say, well, if you believe in that, we certainly then have to look the other way and say, why are we then hiring a city poet? We can get rid of that. On expand, and on and on. Ex- expand on the poet. Well, look, to me, the poet has become a symbol in this city of, it's not a lot of money. There's no question. It's not a lot of money. And some people have said, you're getting bent out of shape about this. It's the, it's the full, it's the point. It's the principle that at a time when we are, we were having, we're going to talk about the tax increase that's coming at the time. I think we were still looking at a 14.2% tax increase and you're looking at hiring a city poet. Really? Is that really where we should be spending our time and our money? And yes, 
Relatively speaking, it is a minuscule amount of money, but it speaks something to priority. And I thought at the time and still do, I think it's just not the time for these kinds of things. We, we don't need to be spending any more on stuff like this than we need to, because Scott, let me go back to where I very first started this conversation. It is often lost in these discussions that this is our money. We all the time hear people say, well, city hall has decided to spend X number of dollars yet, but that's not their dollars. That's our dollars. And so I would very much appreciate that city hall and the people at city hall would go through line by line with a fine tooth comb, everything that it's spending money on and see if there is stuff that is completely unnecessary. Uh, we had Larry Danny on, former mayor of Hamilton, because we can't get the real one. But anyway, I digress. Um, very concerned he was that breaking into reserves just to keep this down, he said that's not, uh, that's not sustainable. I, he's not the only one who said that. There were other councillors talking about that today, saying this is, uh, and I'm using my own words here, but this is a smoke and mirrors budget, that the budget is real. The tax increase is smoke and mirrors because the amount, I don't know if you caught this today, the city's spending went up 19 and a half percent this year as part yeah, of this that's budget. What he said. Yeah. It's an extraordinary amount of money at yeah. a time again, when people are struggling with mortgages, struggling with debt, struggling to pay their bills. And this city council has shown basically no ability to restrain itself. But what we've done, what they've done is now dig into the reserves to kind of camouflage the fact of how much spending is being done, but yeah. there's a problem with that. And we're going to talk to the mayor about it. At some point we run out of reserves mm -hmm. and then what? And then what? Well, I can tell you what, um, you know, talking again to a number of the counselors today, the ones who voted against it, then what happens when the reserves go away, when the reserves are exhausted? eventually you're going to have to pay that amount that is right now being covered by the reserves. The big wallop of a tax increase, Scott, is coming. They yeah. may have been able to hide it and tamp it down this year. It's coming. Scott Radley coming up after the six o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. The mayor will join him as well. Uh, Scott, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great show. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This one, a text from Greg on the GFL landfill smell. Had to laugh at the dump smell situation. I drove down, I drive down mud daily and smell it often. It's disgusting. The dump seems to be going with the classic line, you smelt it, you dealt it. LOL. Keep right except to pass. Oh.